So it's so absurd when people say, oh, it, uh, Putin is attacking an independent and sovereign Ukraine. It is a U.S. neo-colony. That is all it is. I mean, that doesn't justify, that would in itself justify an attack on it. But let's do away with this idea that Ukraine is somehow independent. And we can talk about how peaceful it is, too. It's far from that either. Ukraine's not even a country. It's kind of a concept. It's not even a country. So when you talk about sovereignty and self-determination, it's just a corrupt area where the Clintons have turned into a colony where we can steal money out of. With the connivance of Germany, France and Poland, and with the support of the United States, where the legitimately elected president of the country was overthrown. I went in yesterday and there was a television screen and I said, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. By the way, this never would have happened with us. Had I been in office, not even thinkable. This would never have happened. And you know what the response was from Biden? There was no response. They didn't have one for that. Now it's very sad. But he said, we must speak the truth about terrorists. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories, malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves. What happens? I tell you what happens. Wham! I have a window that looks directly at the World Trade Center, and I saw... No delusion! Shit's getting way too complicated for me. Welcome to The Antidote. This is Greg McCarran. And this is Jeremy Roth. Fuckowitz. No, just joking. So... <laughs> Um, uh, the, in the words of the not so immortal uh, Ryan Dawson, <laughs> reference to you. Um, um, but anyway, we are recording today on a uh, Tuesday, March 8th. And, uh, of course we're about, I guess, 12 days after the invasion of, uh, Ukraine was made uh, official, um, took place in terms Ukraine of Ukraine doesn't exist, Greg. <laughs> well, I mean, that was interesting. So, um, that was the first clip we played actually was, um, a, um, back, back to back of a uh, Max Blumenthal and um, Steve Bannon, who you would think ostensibly are as opposite as you could get, um, both basically arguing that um, you know there's not a legitimate country known as Ukraine, and that um, basically delegitimizing. I mean, more so Steve Bannon directly, but there was a delegitimization there um, that reminded me very much of like when people say there's no such thing as a Palestinian in the spirit of Golda Meir. Um, as echoed by Newt Gingrich in the 2012 presidential election. Um, that was the first clip we played, and I thought that was uh, very interesting as I do see like a comparison between um, the way Ukraine talked about there. And if we're going to talk about later on, maybe not in this program, but in our series about even Alexander Dugan's uh, sentiments about Ukraine, that there is a similarity between like uh, you know Zionist hardliners in Palestine and um, some of the um, Russian hardliners with relation to Ukraine. That was the first clip we played. And then we followed that up with a clip of who was that, Jeremy? Um, it was the, the Russian em, the Russian uh, uh, ambassador to the UN. Oh, wow. Saying that there's no um, legitimate, uh, that the 
legitimately elected president was overthrown in the United States, which is you said, uh, which is you said in response to that, Putin's going full QAnon. Either that or Putin's going full David Duke, and one or the other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the uh, last clip we played was a recent interview with uh, Donald Trump. I think just the, I think this was just after the invasion, not long after, where he basically calls Putin a genius and says that we need this type of force on our southern border. So what's Trump saying? We need to go annex parts of Mexico? Is that what he's saying? I mean, I thought the argument always was that Mexico wanted to take back Texas and reclaim it or whatever. So basically, we need to treat the southern border like Putin's treating these uh, Ukrainian provinces, right? And Or, um, or why not the uh, reverse reconquista and reclaim Mexico? Yeah. And so those um, we introduced and wanted to play those clips to introduce the show, because I think the combination of Bannon and Blumenthal talking about um, basically delegitimizing um, Ukraine. Um, or or the, the Ukraine, as Trump slips Ukraine, up in the yeah. beginning, which is actually part of the minimalism or the sort of de, the denationalization of, uh, of, of Ukraine, because I believe Ukraine refers to it has a background of referring to the borderlands. So it's basically calling it just the borderlands rather than it's actually, uh, you know, its name. Yeah. And good point. And um, so we picked these clips of uh, Bannon and Blumenthal delegitimizing. And as you said, also Trump in there, basically um, the, the U Ukraine, which is, very interesting because, I mean, while I'm sure there's valid criticisms and critiques of, like, uh, obviously the Western role in, like, NATO, um, there has been things that have been done. I mean, obviously to um, to fan the flames in terms of uh, – on our own side, so to speak, in terms of this whole conflict. But it very much – once again, I go back to the whole Israel thing. So it very much reminds me of, like, a combination of the denunciation of, like, even the very existence of the Palestinians combined with, oh, you know, it's just – they're terrorists. Uh, the terrorists won't stop – firing at Israel or it's very similar to like how the Russia's just going in to denazify. It's like, Oh, Israel's cutting the grass because, uh, or mowing the grass because the Palestinians and Hamas, the Palestinian government won't stop harboring Hamas terrorists who are firing rockets out of schools and hospitals. Therefore we have to go in and bomb them. Pal so, Palestine, of yeah, Palestine doesn't exist. It's just a concept that these angry Arabs came up with after they were, uh, you know, uh, shoved out of their land. It's just become a playground of the Soviets. It's just a, a place where Yasser Arafat is an asset of the Soviet Union. And it's just a place where uh, the money can be uh, filtered out of it and, and that kind of thing. But Palestine doesn't exist. And by, by the way, we didn't want to do this. We didn't want to have to attack these people who are not Palestinians. They are Arabs, the Arabs who are allowed to be there under the great Israeli concern uh, for them, whether they're in Gaza or the, or the West Bank and all of that. Um, but they they forced us to do it. And this is the way that like these these people are acting in in relationship to uh, someone like uh Putin and the invasion of Ukraine and leaving out an entire part of the actual deep uh, modern contemporary history of all of this, because, of course, yes, the whole question of the not the Nazi, the Nazi connection is way deeper than anyone's going to tell you, actually. Because it's it's also the case that it, if you want to like look at the the real deep background and how high level it is in relationship to the American deep state, and the relationship of NATO and the stay behind armies 
and terrorism uh, against terrorism in the Carl Schmitt Nazi jurist kind of uh, way. That is, that's the deep, deep background of uh, of the, some of these networks that include all the way on up through uh, aspects of the American uh, so-called security state. But similarly, like if you really want to talk Nazis, then you then would basically say it's way beyond Azov, Azov Battalion. It's way beyond Banderas. It's oh, didn't wasn't didn't elements of Wall Street help set up uh, the actual Nazi state uh, industrially and back them? Didn't didn't uh, you know people like George H W Bush, Prescott Bush, uh, the uh, actual immediate backing? Of them, and then the uh, the Operation Paperclip and bringing in the Nazis, the relationship of Reinhard Galen. Now it starts to get super complicated in relationship to Israel. Uh, it, those networks helping in helping set up uh, Israeli intelligence, and so yeah. It, if you want to talk about Nazis, then you're going to basically say, okay, you got to justify Putin kinetic warfare to decapitate the American government because of the high-level Nazi uh, collaboration and uh, sponsorship and involvement to all of that. Now, meanwhile, there's already been hybrid warfare, and, uh, and, and what we can see the actual results of, uh, of the Russian, we should call it the Russian deep state. No one else will do it, but we'll continue to, to that's a concept that should be understood. And it's so obvious, especially in relationship to both Ukraine and, and how it relates exactly to what uh, Putin and the highest levels of the Russian security state and its involvement with the deep state, i.e. the intersection of the national security apparatus with the underground uh, black economy, organized crime. That is exactly what you see in operation in both in terms of the Russian involvement in Ukraine over the last few decades, and also in relationship to the 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 obvious uh, Putin asset to some large extent, Donald Trump, and why Putin preferred Donald Trump uh, in in 2016, and why their ambassador to the UN is is sounding like Q and or David Duke uh, or Mike Flynn, we might say the the uh, the American general who went directly to. Uh, for the RT banquet with Vladimir Putin, who went to Russian military intelligence uh, in the years in the run-up to the uh, hybrid warfare operation against the United States. He was still the head of, he was still, the, he was still um, in his position when he went to GRU, I believe, and that was very controversial because he was like the highest ranking official to ever do that, right? Yes. And, and so, yeah. and that was a big, big, a big sort of rupture of protocol, of security protocol it was seen at, at the time. And what we see, actually, of course, is look at David Duke, like you pointed out. Like I was like, actually, it sounds like Putin and his em emissaries are sounding beyond cute. They sort of sound like what David Duke is actually saying at this point, still clinging to this question of the uh, election was stolen. Trump was overthrown by the New World Order. You know, like th it, that's where it interfaces with Q in many ways. But what we see is that even in the background of someone like Dugan, now go to David Livingston's uh, uh, Ordo Ab Cal and his recent article about U Ukraine, if you want to see a really deep dive into the actual uh, ba deep background from the NATO West U.S., 
that side. And then also the deep Nazi aspect. He'll actually uh, show you that. Now, there's a lot that's left, uh, un, you know, not covered from in relationship to the actual Russian deep operations. Uh, but what he points out is that even there's this very strange Dugin relationship to these uh, to these really sort of worldwide fascist networks, in some cases, actual Nazi networks. And so that uh, needs to be unpacked. And because what Dugan actually had been saying, and Dugan looks like he's the architect, uh, not only of the narrative warfare in relationship to Ukraine, uh, but also of the actual operations on the ground in terms of uh, uh, helping set up what became the uh, the uh, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk uh, People's Republics that then Vladimir Putin, as the final uh, initiating uh, diplomatic move, recognizes them as in independent uh, countries, really, and now says they need to be defended. Um, and uh, and Dugan was instrumental to all of that. And what he had been saying was, uh, kill, kill, kill. We need to per, per, uh, perpetrate uh, genocide against the the uh, Ukrainians. So this is the actual, some of the deep background to what's going on here. And virtually no one will actually unpack the the totality of it. But beginning to really go into deep politics and the actual totality of the history here on quote unquote both sides uh, is crucial. And one of the reasons why you know we included the the U the Russia's ambassador to the UN saying that uh, that the United States who had a had the the duly elected president overthrown is that this is crucial to the actual background of what happened in Ukraine, as we pointed out in our previous episodes on this. You go to Paul Manafort uh, working with Yanukovych and Mike bringing in Mike Connell, Rove's IT guru, specializing in the apparent actual election fraud, election rigging operations from 2004, the United States, uh, and bringing him into Ukraine to steal the election. And then they got caught that time. Now, it looks like they then successfully pulled it off in 2010 and then there was a there was some blowback there that then the United States uh, and the NATO and uh, some covert operations and Victoria Newland and all of that um, utilized and uh, ex exacerbated and installed their their own uh, plutocrat uh, in place there. So they're in that kind of thing. There's no there's no good guys here in terms of that. Now, meanwhile, we will eventually get to the fact of, well, then what then do we do in terms of the situation and how the escalation of uh, the global conflagration, both economic, the economic aspect of all of this, how it affects all of the people of the world, including people obviously in Ukraine, but also the people in Russia, but also people in in uh, in uh, in the the quote unquote global South. Imagine what might happen in terms of wheat prices in the Middle East. The Europeans, the Americans, everyone's going to be is affected by this. Now, there's other possibilities here where it's interesting that it's sort of flipping into this situation where now Biden is being uh, criticized and partially correctly from the left in terms of remember what the U.S. government, how the U.S. government approached the uh, Venezuela or Iran. But now Biden is in a position where he is he's being pushed because of the oil war that's now going on with Russia 
to uh, create a recreate a relationship based on oil with Venezuela and Iran. And now you then see the sort of the hardliners, especially the Zionists in relationship to Iran of uh, Biden sidling up to a terrorist regime or the uh, the hardliners, uh, you know, from from the sort of hard conservative national security right in terms of the the uh, socialist uh, dictatorship of Venezuela and all of that. But what I see is there's a possibility of a much more natural geopolitical relationship going on here in terms of the United States and its interests. Uh, and then and then what we need to figure out is then how to de-escalate this thing with with, you know, without the Ukrainians and Russians and Europeans and global South and the United States, uh, everybody suffering uh, from it. So eventually we'll get into the what we might call antidote solutions in relationship to uh, to uh, to all of this. But meanwhile, we do have to deal with the question of of the uh, the cover up of the actual Russian deep state operations, which is the really the missing piece. It's even missing, as we pointed out, from the uh, from the sort of NATO uh, and Ukrainian loyal and uh, American, especially side of this. In terms of the, they are there's a flank there that's very uncomfortable in relationship to, in the same way that. Vladimir Putin is very sensitive to this question of 9-11 was a false flag operation. He sort of will we'll play a clip eventually about where he goes out of his way uh, when asked about the moon landing to talk about there's no way 9-11 could have been some kind of security services operation because he has a lot of vulnerability in terms of his own domestic false flag operations in terms of the, the, uh, the, the bombings and relationship to aggressive war in Chechnya, for example, but also in relationship to domestic power and consolidating his place. He also, just like the United States and the West, it has a lot of uh, issues with the election fraud, where he, we will play clips where uh, in relationship to talking about with Oliver Stone, he totally denies that Russia will ever be involved in the elections of the United States ever. And never does that. Never gets involved in the domestic affairs of any other any other country. It's just absurd. And so, but the United States is equally, if not more so, vulnerable on the questions of follow the false flags to the bottom or follow the question of election fraud uh, to the to the bottom. Uh, and so, we want to root out all of that. Let's follow the deep politics all the way to the root, uh, especially in these questions of false flags and election fraud, election rigging, i.e. under something like hybrid warfare, nonlinear warfare as part of uh, of that. And then we'll be able to see the ways in which this is being uh, totally controlled uh, in terms of the dialectic of the media. Yep. And um, it's go back to Dugan and the idea that um, it's the un it's just and it's not to say that it's not legitimate as we talked as you mentioned before but uh this idea that the narrative that is completely entirely accepted by the vast majority of what we would call the alternative media here in the west um and very very russian influenced alternative media very directly russian influence is that um russia is waging a war to quote denazify ukraine as if the only problem is that um um, Ukraine is 
backed by or Ukraine, which either is or is not legitimate, depending on who you listen to. Um, Ukraine is um, a puppet regime of the West, and the West has Nazis in place just to um, just to hurt Russia as much as possible. And you think about that, and then you bring in Dugan and the fact that you know Dugan's biggest admirers in the West are what are called neo-Nazis. I mean, obviously that term's weaponized. I mean, it's a you know it's a very weaponized term. As we've talked about going back and even like the whole B'nai B'rith history and the way like some of these movements are put out there and how a lot of these people like the aforementioned David Duke are not who they appear to be in terms of like being presented as like the ultimate face of white supremacy and neo-Nazism or whatever. When in reality, he's like an agent of some type of like American intelligence at some level or another who has been brought into the Russian sphere completely as a Russian mouthpiece over the last couple of decades, coinciding with fleeing the United States over, I believe, tax evasion when he was presenting himself as a political prisoner for opposing the Iraq war. So, um, <laughs> but so there's deep history there, but this idea, but it, the biggest admirers of like, of Russia, of Putin, of Alexander Dugin are these American, what do we call like these fascist, neo-Nazis, whatever term you want to use, all the way ranging from David Duke to Nick Fuentes to uh, people like Matthew Heimbach, the people behind the Unite the Right rally and their, kind of horseshoe with the alt-right and the alt-light, so to speak, which we've identified in a lot of cases where one is not as um, apologetic of Russia, but there's still this like, um, there's still this overlap in terms of narratives as we'll, as we'll get into. So this idea that like, that people just uncritically buy that this is all about denazifying Ukraine and Russia wants to commit as minimal casualties as possible and only carry out, um, you know, take out the, the Nazi terrorists who are in collaboration with the West. It's, I mean, it, I think it falls on its face because it's way more nuanced and complicated than that. And that's a, that's a simplistic, easy talking point for people to accept that, well, you know, they're just doing what they have to do. And therefore there's no legitimate criticism of anything Russia does in Ukraine, because one, your own countries are complicit. And number two, they're doing what they have to do. And this is, this is self-defense. Even if you don't like what he's doing, which there's a lot of people who have said like, well, we don't agree with it, but ultimately it's justified because Look at what the look at what NATO's doing. Look at what these Ukrainian Nazis are doing, and so it's. I mean, it's it falls it on its face. I think the whole idea of like this is just simply a war against Nazis or whatever. I mean, it's pretty pretty preposterous if you ask me. And then moving into um, the other two clips were of uh, the uh, Greg. Can yeah. I make just one comment real quickly on that? Because I that's I appreciate you very much for bringing that uh, into focus. Because that was actually the point that I forgot to make in terms of. If you actually were saying that Russia has the right to, quote unquote, sort of decapitate the Nazis, then you would have to take it to then, OK, the, the, Putin has the right to decapitate the, the American government. And like you pointed out, we actually saw what would happen in relationship to nonlinear hybrid warfare and election uh, rigging. Uh, election, quote unquote, interference, election fraud really is what became of it in terms of 2016. And as you pointed out, what actually the people who were most empowered, maybe even sort of assets at some level, you might see that in terms of this whole global Dugan network, were the, the people who most could be identified as Nazis in the United States. So that would ultimately, there's obviously the use of the, the Nazi component by this, uh, this uh, Russian deep state operation. So I think then you would see, okay, there's no quote unquote denazification uh, going on here. 
Yep, you're right. And um, thank you for thank you for following up with that. And I, I, I agree with you 100 percent. And so the other clips all interconnected with this, the clip of the Russian I believe, ambassador to the U.N. being translated there that you heard of uh, the legitimate election being stolen. And then Trump with this mishmash of talking points all the way from how much of a genius Putin is to we need this on our southern border, taking it basically to the our own. Um, and that's something that's been done a lot, like in terms of like the propaganda coming from the uh, the MAGA side of things, which is a continuity of what we've been hearing for four or five years. And I'll get into that here in a second because I thought that the clip of um, the clip of Trump talking about that—it's a combination of like where Trump's like obvious weak spot is with Russia and Vladimir Putin. I mean, that does exist, no matter what people want to say to try to dismiss that or debunk that. I mean, it does exist. And that was exemplified right there in that clip. I mean, even Trump even said F Bibi Netanyahu. I don't see him rushing to say F Vladimir Putin. So it's like, uh, there's obviously a weak spot there to say the least. And I would argue it's more than a weak spot, but it's there. And it very much, um, and this, I wanted to get into this just to describe uh, what I'm seeing with the, um, the response from like the MAGA side of things, so to speak, because there's a lot of, hawkishness that you could construe like all the way from like the over-the-top bellicosity of uh bellicosity of lindsey graham uh, i think we need to go in and the russian people need to rise up and assassinate vladimir putin because he's got the goods on my ass and i don't want it all to come out there you go that's <laughs> the actual reason and no one is actually saying that that this is actually what a someone who's been compromised by the, the the highest levels of the Russian security state might say about someone uh, who has the goods on on them at this point and sort of either pointing towards conflagration or towards let, let me sort of like escape under uh, you know a flame or something like that and no and basically everyone's saying he's an idiot why would he break proto diplomatic protocol where he's tweeting out, you know, war crimes, you know, calling for assassination is a war crime. And, uh, and, uh, which make, which then we go back to the whole like thing of the, uh, the, uh, the writer from the Atlanta, the Atlanta calling. It was, it was a, I believe it was specifically a specific Jewish, Jewish, uh, oriented publication in Atlanta. Yes. Calling for the, that maybe it's time for Israel to assassinate Obama or something like that. So th those those kinds of things are in for a government official, for a senator to s say that is a whole nother level of beyond beyond uh, protocol. And like you pointed out, the actual thing is, he, does Putin have the goods on me? And he actually said someone should should uh, assassinate Putin. I think he called very, very specifically. Good point. And and that to me, it like but that's completely missed, like in the media landscape all the way from the people who like want to um combination of dismiss lindsey graham but then also like maybe um exaggerate or get the wrong point on what he appears to represent and then of course you got the typical quote unquote anti-war interest the type of people who are very much in the very russian centric alternative media sphere who want to use this as proof as see the there was no collusion with russia because trump is a uh, trump is in bed with these with the lindsey graham type of neocons who literally want to kill Putin and drag him out of the red square the same way Gaddafi was or whatever. So, I mean, it's, but well, as we're going to get into here, um, if you paid attention the last five years, this has been par for the course as we've described this horseshoe of on one hand, you've got, um, you've got on one hand, the obvious, like more or less like people who are more openly civil 
empathetic, sympathetic towards like the Russian cause on one side. And then you've got the, um, the uh, rhetorical hawks on the other side. And to me, what is going on here? And um, we saw this play out through four years of like Russia gays and nothing burger with people. The right wing talking point would be, well, the Democrats are really in bed with Russia and Trump uh, and Trump is going to get peace through strength. And Putin knows not to mess with us when Trump's in here. Um, you're seeing extension of that now, like just picked up with higher stakes, even as far as like geopolitically with uh, this invasion of Ukraine, where the talking points are everything from American weakness and woke culture is causing this to we need to use this to open up unlimited drilling of uh, oil reserves to we in pipelines to um Biden, um, Biden is appeasing the Russians, all of these talking points. And then I think encapsulated, I think uh, Nikki Haley, the uh, UN ambassador under Trump, encapsulated this uh, pretty well on uh, Meet the Press on Sunday, where she had a comment about like, basically, Chuck Todd in his own milk toast, half assed uh, way is like, trying to borderline press Nikki Haley on Trump and the Trump, Trump administration, Russia, Ukraine policy. And Nikki Haley, somebody who's presented as like one of the foremost Russia neocon hawks that's out there goes on meet the press on and defends Trump basically saying that uh, regardless of what he said I watched his actions and by his actions I knew he was not he would never have allowed this to happen and he was serious about reigning in and controlling Russia and Putin knew not to do this under Trump and so right there Jeremy I think like I think things like that and even combined with this clip of Trump calling him a genius and all this while throwing out these BS um, claims of what he would do if Putin did this, like the big, you know, like the big schoolyard bully who's really a coward inside who backs down when he's actually confronted. Like that's what Trump is. I mean, talking like that, talking the big game. I think the game is um, the jig is kind of uh, exposed here that this is just simply a continuity of running cover for uh, whatever the geopolitical attitudes are towards Russia from this camp. And I'm not going to say all these people are like pro-Russia, quote-unquote. Like, I don't think all these people represent directly represent Russian interests or whatever, but this continues to push the bigger cover-up of Trump-Russia and of the bigger foreign collusion, and of course, the countries that Nikki Haley is obviously very um, friendly towards, which, i.e., Israel being right at the center of this as well. And um, I think it is up in that this, all this bellicose rhetoric and hawkishness, rhetorical and otherwise, while it may not be entirely like... Um, fake in terms of like actual sentiments of like there might actually be some hostility towards or geopolitical um, differences with regards to Russia, that this is being done by this operation that we've been identifying for the last five years to cover for the 2016 election and what happened with the takeover of the GOP and our domestic politics under the guise of bellicose um, hawkishness towards uh, Russia in the spirit of like old Cold War style um, peace through strength arguments and America needs to be strong. And I think you see that play out here and it's not being explained by the quote unquote alternative media because they play right into that, that really you see that the Republicans and Democrats are together. And Trump's actually together with the Democrats, if anything, despite his rhetoric and that they all want to just punish Putin and see him reined in because he's a threat to their monolithic interest and whatever Trump did that was different. Oh, well, that's only because he's a maverick who, um, doesn't quite know how the game is played. He runs his mouth when he's uh, not supposed to. And one more point, uh, going back to the Bannon-Blumenthal hybrid clip, um, is that going back to what we talked about at the start with uh, this idea of comparing like the rhetoric about Ukraine, the what it seems to me like a delegitimizing of, uh, of 
legitimate, actually legitimate, like Ukrainian interests as it relates to Russia. Um, very similar to the old, you know, Golda Meir attributed quote of "There's no such thing as a Palestinian," which obviously, if you listen to like the you know, Zionist uh, apologists, like is the heart, definitely like that is um, a big part of their theology is that Palestine doesn't exist. It's a fake idea, and it's actually and it, all of all that entails with that. And so you have once again, like I talked about horseshoes, you have this horseshoe here of Steve Bannon, who was the CEO of Breitbart, made America conceived in Israel, seems to be a direct, at some level, mouthpiece for the Netanyahu Likudnik interests in Israel, with whatever assortment of other geopolitical interests, like the Bannon Mercer network, is in bed with. Um, and all of that entails um, saying that basically dismissing like the idea of like a legitimate Ukrainian cause and then bringing in the other side of quote unquote of Max Blumenthal. And by the way, we have to uh, we have to we haven't forgotten about Max Blumenthal as it relates to what you dug up, Jeremy. We'll have to go back to this another time of uh, Max Blumenthal being asked about his father and Max Blumenthal letting it out that his father worked with um, Philip Agee, the um, founder of uh, Covert Affairs, and we'll have to get into what that entails, unless you want to talk about it briefly now, but we'll have to get into what that entails in a future show. Yeah, let's let's do that in a in a future show, because actually, okay. remember, we, we were going to go back to even the, the this very strange kind of, at the very least, uh, positional horseshoe in terms of Roger Stone with, uh, with Grassy Knoll, Sidney Blumenthal, and what that all uh, represents. That's something that we've been talking about for like years on end for do it to do. And I think it's the right time to actually get into that, especially as Roger Stone's coming back to the forefront. And this question was posed to Max Blumenthal and he's out there saying these kinds of things now in terms of uh, do, doing some kind of soft denial of, uh, of the Ukrainian uh, national, uh, you know, coherency of any sort which very which is which when sort of coupled then with his role in like you pointed out in Pal the Palestinian solidarity movement and what we've actually seen from him in relationship to that is not just sort of good historical books which he has also done some good reporting in terms of uh, Goliath and re reporting about the 51 the 51 days of the Israeli assault on on Gaza but this also he's also the one who's been helping uh, control the deeper discourse in terms of someone like Alison Weir, as we've pointed out over and over again, where this key piece of historical evidence coming actually from an Israeli historian that there was a parushim, a secret Zionist society that that the uh, Brandeis, uh, for example, was a part of a Supreme Court justice. The first Jewish Supreme Court justice was actually playing, was a Zionist operative at the same time. Who Woodrow Wilson may or may not have been blackmailed slash compromised into putting in there by extension of some things that potentially went on with extramarital affairs. I don't know all that, but also Samuel Untermeyer being at the center of that. So, I mean, there's a lot of history there, potentially. And he, he also referred to, uh, when he was asked about that, for example, he called it a con, uh, an anti-Semitic conspiracy th theory, I think, and dismissed it 
And now that that's historical fact in terms of the parushim. Now you could then argue about what it all means, whether it was legitimate political action or not, uh, that kind of thing. But you can't d- deny the, histo- the historical evidence that this group existed uh, in relationship to the actual setting up of the Zionist movement to be in a, a strong position in the United States for the ultimate uh, creation of of Israel and and Blumenthal betrayed his his dishonesty in relationship um to to all of that and he also remember he also talked about uh he referred to Stephen Snagoski's book Transparent Cabal in that was very much about the sort of even deeper than what had gone been done by Mearsheimer and Walt in the Israel lobby specifically in relationship to the post 9/11 wars and the Iraq war that was another area where he wanted to dishonestly limit the discourse and now this is one of the reasons why i think that like we have the credit our our credibility in relationship to being actual anti-war and anti-imperialism let's say too an anti invasion is is replete it's proven out over our our public discourse over the last 5 years oh i'd say of of anybody in the in the public realm we've been the ones who've been the most repetitive in relationship to the actual illegal origins and immoral aspect of the of the Iraq war and how it actually went down and how it was related to the networks that were still operating in relationship to to uh, the so-called Trump Russia operation. And so the fact that that there this this kind of network that is not only doing these very sort of Russian sphere propaganda points like people like Bannon and Blumenthal, for example, that they are also the realm that l- limits the discourse in terms of deep politics. And this is where we will continue to repeat our points about why deep politics uh, are, is so important, especially if you see yourself as, uh, as uh, being uh, having a legitimate criticism of how this is, uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy in relationship to the United States and the West take on this uh, and this specific invasion versus the ongoing assault, for example, of the uh, people in the Middle East and the people of Yemen and the people of Palestine and the people of, quote unquote, greater Israel. And we'll, we'll return to that and actually start reading from uh, from the Oded Yanon uh, document to actually see what it specifically calls for. Because remember, the, the this aspect of the clean break paper that someone like Blumenthal tried to avoid even talking about for a while, we kept on like bringing it up even in terms of Sputnik, um, uh, Lee Stranahan. And there's a very interesting, I'll just mention it briefly, we will go there and probably in our next episode, but the question of Oliver Stone uh, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of his access to Putin, his Ukrainian films, his son Sean Stone was just back on Infowars with Alex Jones, like kissing his butt, really, in many ways, and 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 you know talking about these sort of similar kind of talking points, much more maybe Q uh, oriented in terms of like a, the pushback against the uh, immoral New World Order in many ways, and that kind of. 
and that kind of thing. And disclosing that he has high level Russian, sounds like military intelligence sources that are telling him things and all of that, that there's this very interesting question here in terms of Oliver Stone's production of his films about Ukraine, that his uh, producer on that, uh, I can't remember the man's name, but you go to his uh, Twitter timeline and we'll, we'll link to it. And uh, he's retweeting uh, people like uh, George Papadopoulos's wife. Uh, over and over again. He's retweeting people like Jack Posobiec. He's retweeting uh, Lee Stranahan, which would made, which is what made me think of this in terms of when we were calling in to, uh, to fault lines uh, with Ni then Nixon and Stranahan and bringing up things like the clean break paper and how the, what was actually described in terms of clean break was exactly what we saw from quote unquote, both sides of the quote unquote conflict in terms of there. And that Russia was playing a very specific position that was not only in terms of its own national security relationship, I mean, interests, and, but also its economic interests in terms of a, a, a warm water uh, port over, over there, but also in terms of managing the good cop side of the, uh, the Syria quote unquote conflict and what was exactly called for in the clean break paper, which was overthrow in Iraq and roll back in Syria. And specifically the key role that was played by Russia in terms of facilitating this key, uh, you know, hardline neoconservative Israeli uh, high level interests in terms of uh, defanging the Syrian government in terms of the, the whole nature of the chemical weapon uh, discourse and all of that and how Russia played the key role in, in helping get rid of the Syrian uh, chemical weapons, which were mainly, uh, you know, their version of, of nukes, right? And ha wasn't that something that the Israelis have shown over and over that they're willing to do is bomb uh, nuclear plants of uh, other countries in their area, uh, Iraq? I believe there was even an attack on Syria in terms of that at some point. And so that's what existed then in terms of a, you know, a WMD deterrent in Syrian hands. And Russia played the key role in terms of the, the threat from Obama after the crossing of the red line. And there's a whole history there. Uh, in terms of that that early history of Syria, what happened in terms of we see a similar kind of thing with the with a, uh, um, a democratic uprising of some sort, and then the snipers come out that we saw in terms of Ukraine, uh, and then and then early on there in terms of that quote unquote conflict in Syria, the the red line is crossed, and then a an American uh, NBC national security reporter asks John Kerry whether there's something that could be done in order to stop a, a military response from the United States and the Obama administration. And Kerry immediately says they could get, uh, Assad could get rid of all of his chemical weapons. And then bam, Russia jumps into action to say, we can do that. And then they do it. And, uh, and as we pointed out over and over and over again, is that, that Russia is not some kind of good actor in Syria. They're bombing the crap out of out of Syria for the interests of their. There's an un uncomfortable client relationship with uh, with Assad, and they definitely have their own specific uh, interests there. And they're the ones managing the relationship 
with Israel in a very friendly way, actually. And we've uh, talked about that in terms of the the whole question of Iran uh, in Syria and how Russia, the Russian-Israeli relationship is on full display in, ter- in terms of the management uh, of all of that. So that's that whole background there that all of these networks, whether it's Max Blumenthal, I, f- I heard him finally mention the clean break paper, I think, maybe within the last year. And then uh, and then uh, Lee Stranahan on Sputnik Radio being really uncomfortable with that analysis when I brought it up when I brought it up there. So we, we will continue to go to, uh, you know, facts and history and logical analysis about what is not uh, being dealt with here. Yeah, it um it came out that Bennett um, secretly, it's almost sounded like it was done, done and done secretly, traveled to Moscow and met with Putin. Did he meet with Zelensky or any other leaders? And I would wonder if people want to ask what's up with that, just like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu saying, uh, don't worry about the Ukraine. Uh, the, you need to worry about the real threat, which is Iran. It's like these are questions that are not getting raised by like the usual crowd who wants to like, as, as if like Russia and Israel's interests are completely opposite of each other, that Israel simply acts as like an extension of like the West or or the dog that uh, wags or the tail that wags dog or however you want to put it. Um, the, the control slash um, client relationship and all this, but uh, questions that don't get raised. And, do, you, um, do you want to play that that clip, the McCarthy clip, then, Greg, or no? Um, if you uh, if you if you if you have it pulled up and we're ready to do it, that was a clip of uh, Kevin McCarthy on um, Sunday Morning Futures with Maria Bartiromo on Fox News, uh, where she, where he asked about his meeting with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. And this is from a week ago Sunday. If you want to play it, all right, let, all right, let's play that right now. By the way, I apologize for that bad Netanyahu impression. <laughs> <laughs> Your Kissinger is the most consistent, but that it wasn't bad. To the clip. So will you be encouraging that this upcoming week? You're right. Biden authorized the $350 million defense aid package on Friday, only after we heard President Zelensky say, I don't need a ride. I need ammo. And that pushed this uh, into, into action. You're just back from Israel. And I know you spent time with the leadership in Israel, uh, as well as Bibi Netanyahu. Tell us what they were saying about this current conflict. We were worried about Iran getting a nuclear weapon. Now we're worried about not only Iran, but also Putin using his stockpile. I would say people are very afraid of JCPOA, the negotiations, the other action that President Biden took when he took to the administration. They started a negotiation with Iran. Remember the last plan allowed Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Now they're moving forward. It may even be weaker. This puts a fear in all of the Middle East for Iran ever to have a nuclear weapon. If you're worried about what, what Putin said today, think about what Iran says every single day when it wants to wipe Israel and America off the face of the earth. We would never want to have Iran or never allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon. These were many discussions that we had with the prime minister, with the former prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu. This is a real concern. But we're also talking about Ukraine because what Europe needs and its actions that have taken before, America can supply the natural gas to Ukraine 
the action of the Biden administration has made it harder on America to do that. Our gas price is higher. We're spending $53 million a day is going to Putin to fund his war. They are supplying more crude to America, not less. These are the actions we should take and speed up our ability to drill and supply and shut Putin down economically as well. Okay, so that was uh, that was the House Republican leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, on uh, Fox News a week ago Sunday, um, being asked about, and I initially took this as McCarthy was being asked directly about Israel's uh, reaction to Russia Ukraine, what its stance was, and you pointed out that it was almost even more set up in a way to like just rail on about the Iran deal, the JCPOA, and I think I come closer to seeing it your way, but I still think that like even McCarthy, like not not saying what Israel thought of like what was going on in Russia was pretty telling, especially with uh, what we mentioned earlier with Netanyahu saying, don't worry about Iran. Israel's the real threat here. Uh, and, Iran is the real threat. And yes, don't worry. The Iran is the real threat here. It almost seems like uh, that's being parroted here in a way to like push like the Netanyahu uh, hardliner talking points about, about Iran. And so McCarthy deflects in two ways or answers in two ways. Number one is to turn it back on Iran, and then also to play into the energy wars. And all of this could be solved if we could simply open up our pipelines and send all this natural gas that the Ukrainians need as well as our gas. And that's how we're going to defeat Russia and all this geopolitically. And so um, I clip once again just goes back to the way like a combination of the issue around Israel, obviously, but then also the way that this is weaponized in terms of um, of the uh, – deflecting away from any complicity of like a Trump administration and getting us into this moment, combined with typical talking points about American strength militarily and economically in terms of the energy sector. So uh, that's, that's um, I think that that was an illustrative clip in that regard. And Jeremy, let's not forget about what um, Kevin McCarthy was uh, quoted as saying back before Donald Trump was president and maybe before Leonard Blavatnik, uh, among others, got their money into Kevin McCarthy's uh, campaign coffers. That is a very good point, Greg. And uh, Blavatnik is actually maybe crucial because remember that that photo that we like to highlight of Blavatnik clearly is sort of the the patron uh, standing there with Senator Lindsey Graham and the guy with the the underpants on Dershowitz, not the guy without the underpants, uh, the former CTO of Microsoft. <laughs> so that's an important uh, picture because that actually represents exactly what you're talking about. And then remember Rubio, Rubio having been also in the in the mix, in the Russian money mix, too. Uh, and so these guys, Rubio and Graham coming out with these sort of way these are this is not diplomatic protocol. It doesn't actually serve American interests, what they've been saying uh, in, in the public, the way they've been saying it. And even if it's sort of seen as a hyper aggressive, uh, hyper patriotic hawkish kind of way, as we pointed out over and over, that seems to play the role of a certain kind of hawk dove, uh, horseshoe in many ways too. And so I'm going to read from uh, house of Trump house of Putin, the untold story of Donald Trump and the Russian mafia by Craig Unger, which by oh, real quick, Jim. Yeah. Well, go ahead. And now I'll say something real quick and then we can do it. But I was just going to say that um, it's interesting, like you mentioned the dialectic between pro 
more hawkish and dovish. And it all seems to be going through Fox News, where you have Lindsey Graham, I believe, uh, made his threats to Putin or elaborated on them on Fox, where you've also got people like General Douglas McGregor saying that Putin's right and Russia's trying to minimize casualties and the U.S. has no space in it. So you're seeing the both sides. Or like Tulsi Gabbard, too, sort of is it's like Douglas yeah. McGregor and Tulsi Gabbard saying we need to understand uh, mm-hmm. we, we need yeah. to understand Russia's security interests. That's the only problem here versus then uh, the uh, Rubio's and the Graham's. Uh, so that you're right. And all that's happening on Fox. <laughs> Yeah. Did Fox News play a key role in terms of like this, um, the hawk, the MAGA hawks and the MAGA doves, where ultimately what they're doing is they're this bigger thing that is happening is covers being ran for what really went on in 2016 and beyond. Yeah. And so. All right. So there's there's a this is page 246 and it starts out talking about Kevin McCarthy disclosing the actual Republican uh political warfare reasons for the uh, Clinton Benghazi investigations. And I don't want it to, you know, it's not the case that like, we don't understand the deep, deep criminality and corruption of the Clinton crime syndicate. You know, it was, it was, I was there in, you know, December of 29, 2016 at the Dole Institute pointing out in directly to the the highest level of people in the Clinton campaign and the people in the Trump campaign and the New York Times and CNN and the Dole Institute people themselves who have, there's a whole questionable thing there that we talked about in terms of Dole's relationship and also then the way that they never covered Trump Russia in any of their programs and have had, have, have featured some very suspicious people, people such as we've referenced before in terms of George Mitchell has been there before, uh, George Mitchell implicated in the FC Maxwell um, network um, or uh, Donald Gregg, who who we will get back to in terms of dealing with the Craig Spence, uh, George H.W. Bush implicated uh, sex trafficking compromise operation that was running via the through the White House and beyond uh, during during the 80s. Uh, and so there's a whole issue there. But I, I was there in December of 2016 during the transition, pointing out that there were not two uh, c- candidates for presidency that the American people were supposed to decide between between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, who were more comp, who were not more compromised than them by Epstein Maxwell, which was a, a foreign, uh, some aspect, there was a foreign intelligence compromise operation to that. And, uh, and so the Clintons are very much corrupt, very much compromised. And including that, you know, what Bannon said about the, the Clinton corruption in terms of Ukraine, um, or that could go even into Russia in terms of the payouts from the uh, Skolkovo network uh, into uh, the Clinton Foundation. And remember who started the Clinton Foundation, or at least claims to have helped start the Clinton Foundation, was uh, Jeffrey Epstein, right? And Doug Band, the main, one of the main Clinton guys, is uh, uh, up to his ears in, in all of that, it looks like. And of course, Clint, Bill Clinton over and over and over on the plane and all of that. And, and then, of course, yeah, Biden and Burisma, and there is the general level uh, grift that the, the United States political system uh, runs on, 
uh, operating throughout all of this. And yet at the same time, the, the Kevin McCarthy's duplicity and deception in terms of the Iran deal is on full display here. And at the very least, what you can say is that Obama's Iran deal, which remember, we, we kept on saying this early on in the Trump years, that Trump himself said the reason he got into the, into the uh, run for presidency was the, how bad a deal the Iran deal was. But what was that actually doing? And we're seeing, like I pointed out just a little bit before this, what's actually happening right now is a re a potential reconnection of the of the what should be a natural alliance between the between the United States and Iran. And now if this will then extend then to the United States and Venezuela, that will then represent a uh, a, a very natural national interest um coherence coming up here in relationship to this uh, issue of uh, of Russia. And the problem of course, with McCarthy and thus also then the Trump Manafort Russia operation was that it really was a hybrid. It was beyond corruption. It was actually a hybrid warfare attack on the United States, as we've seen the actual political results of it uh, over and over and over and over again. OK, and so we need to be able to be nuanced in terms of our analysis uh, rather than oh they're 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 just all the same it's all just the new world order yes it is there is a dialectic going on here which is why we eventually want to be able to really begin to highlight if we were to actually develop a real populist uh, principled movement not just in the United States but around the world but let's speak from an American perspective what would be the solutions to these kinds of things that represent a combination of an assault on the people, such as energy prices, such as food prices, such as health tyranny uh, and all of that, while also now obviously representing a national security threat, such as food security, such as energy security and all of these things. And we have indigenous, politically indigenous solutions to this that the question of deep politics will help us uncover for example the alternative of the uh of small farm based uh organic agriculture based alcohol uh as as the alternative that was before there was the rise of the oil cartels in the United States there was the rise of the diesel engine there was the rise of the uh, of the grow your own fuel. Remember that one of the ways during prohibition that uh, that certain officials could tell who was uh, breaking the law and brewing their own moonshine was who had the healthiest uh, cattle at market. Because the one of the what happens is you you uh, you use your let's say your corn feed. You do some you do. Uh, 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 grass fed, uh, you know, um, grazing for, uh, uh, much of the year. And then, and then you feed your cattle, what's called uh, dried distiller's grains, which is the result of using your corn to create alcohol. Uh, much of it could be used for fuel first and sure would there be some, then some drinking alcohol, some, uh, uh, pure ethanol, some corn, 
some corn-based, uh, you know, whiskey of some sort? Yes. Or, or, or Everclear kind of uh, thing going on? Yes. But the main thing was that it was alcohol was a threat to the petroleum cartel in the United States. And so we will delve back into some of that history because that also includes the question of Hearst and cannabis and that when all these kinds of things were drugs or alcohol were made illegal, a lot, almost all of that was basically in service of certain petrochemical or industrial uh, interests. In the case of Hearst, it was it had to do with uh, cheap, uh, cheap paper that he was using by clear-cutting uh, Mexican forests. That's looks like that's why it was originally titled marijuana, in terms of the uh, the uh, political assault on cannabis in the United States was because they would then associate it with the, uh, the, uh, me the Mexican uh, soldiers and defenders of their lands who would uh, uh, use cannabis and uh, Mar Maria Juana. And then it also associated with the, the Mexicans and all that. So there's a whole history there. In, and I want to begin to get into this kind of thing of antidote solutions where we begin to talk about the threat right now in terms of, for example, food prices has to do with, uh, with Russia being a, a crucial um, supplier of of uh, of the NPK based fertilizers, meaning uh, those are that's what we've reduced agriculture, which is actually way more biologically complex when done properly, and goes way beyond those three ingredients and nitrogen, uh, P, um, uh, potassium, uh, and then K. Oh no, P is phosphorus, and then K is uh, uh, potassium, I believe. Or maybe it's the other way around. And Russia is a major supplier of, uh, and, and largely, I think, because of the natural gas uh, resources that it has of things like um, uh, nitrogen fertilizer and uh, potassium uh, fertilizer. And so the, these kinds of indigenous economic solutions that have are already raised up in, in an American context, such as small farmers doing biologically active, regenerative, rejuvenative agriculture while also creating their own fuels and their community's own fuels while also food is obviously a key uh, a solution globally uh, if, if, if done all around the world to these kinds of questions that are threatening both the American people and the Russian people in this context. And now it goes way beyond that, but th I just want to bring in that 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 is a, a a a piece in the background in terms of why understanding certain deep political history in an American context will free up certain solutions that were already available that have been uh, not rejected because of engineering problems or material uh, scarcity, but because of uh, of the kinds of industrial interests that are dominating quote-unquote, both sides of this, quote-unquote, uh, conflict. So uh, that was a, a long tangent. I will now get to the uh, passage, Greg, unless you want to comment real quickly. Come for the info, stay for the tangent. <laughs> All right, House of Trump, House of Putin, The Untold Story of Donald Trump and the Russian Mafia by Craig Unger. And by the way, the, in the back of this, uh, there's also a lot of interesting information about Manafort and uh, and Ukraine and Dmitry Firtash and that whole operation that we've uh, touched on a few years back. And there's also a listing of 
uh, 50 Russian sphere or something like that, oligarchs who are very closely connected to the, to the Trump operation. Uh, that's uh, very helpful in this book. All right, page 246, quote, All the while, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy had been listening and decided to join in. The second-ranking Republican after Ryan, McCarthy had a nasty habit of blurting out inconvenient truths every once in a while. Okay, wait, no, let me back up to the top of this. I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry, Greg. Okay, quote, Well, the Russians are bombing them 30, 40 shells a day, Ryan said. Crimea is gone, and they're trying to clean up their government to show that they want to be Western. He has this really interesting riff about what Russia is doing to us, financing our populace, financing people in our governments to undo our governments, you know, messing with our oil and gas energy, all the things Russia does to basically blow up our country. They're going to roll right through us and go to the Baltics and everyone else, unquote. Yes, said Rogers. She added that she had been astounded by the sophistication of Russian propaganda. This isn't just about Ukraine, said Ryan. It's a propaganda war, said Rogers. Maniacal. Yes, said Rogers. And guess, guess who's the only one taking a strong stand up against it, said Ryan. We are. What? Rogers was agog. She didn't buy it for a second. We're not, we're not, but we're not. All the while, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy had been listening and decided to join in. The second-ranking Republican after Ryan, McCarthy had a nasty habit of blurting out inconvenient truths every once in a while. In 2015, on Fox News, no less, McCarthy had said that a principal reason behind the costly and interminable congressional investigations into the Benghazi tragedy had been to drive down Hillary Clinton's poll numbers. Quote, everybody thought Hillary Clinton was unbeatable, right, he said, but we put together a Benghazi special committee, a select committee. What are her numbers today? Her numbers are dropping, unquote. McCarthy had appalled fellow Republicans because he had just corroborated Democratic allegations that the Benghazi probe was not about getting to the bottom of a real scandal so much as turning Congress's investigative powers into a political weapon against Hillary. This time, the majority leader had an opportunity to make an even bigger gaffe. The day before, a hacker using the name Guccifer 2.0 had gone public in claiming credit for breaking into the Democratic National Committee's computers, and a cybersecurity firm called CrowdStrike had attributed the operation to Russian intelligence. Where, where, I want to see the servers, where are the servers? I'm hearing where are the servers? Okay, now came McCarthy's eureka moment. Quote, I'll guarantee you that's what it is, he said unintelligible. The Russians hacked the DNC and got the op research that they had on Trump, unquote, and delivered it to who, to who's, asked Ryan, unintelligible. Quote, there's two people I think Putin pays, Rohrbacher and Trump, laughter, swear to God, unquote. Ryan couldn't believe what he was hearing. Kevin McCarthy, the second most powerful Republican in the House, had said Trump and Rohrbacher were on the Kremlin payroll. How else to explain Russia's generosity to the Republicans when it came to Democratic emails? As Speaker of the House, Ryan tried to gain control. He could not allow this to become public. Quote, this isn't off the record. Laughter. No leaks. Laughter. All right? This is how we know we are a real family here. What's said in the family stays in the family. Unquote. When asked to comment on the exchange, Brendan Buck, a spokesman for Ryan, told the Washington Post that it, quote, never happened, unquote. 
Matt Sparks, a spokesman for McCarthy, said, quote, the idea that McCarthy would, uh, would assert this is absurd and false, unquote. After being told that there was a recording, Sparks characterized the conversation as, quote, a failed attempt at humor, unquote. By the way, my immediate reaction is it reminds me exactly of what, uh, how Michael Cohen uh, backtracked after uh, he let it slip that uh, after uh, Dmitry Rubolovlev, the uh, Russian sphere fertilizer king, whose plane followed Trump around, Trump's operation around during the uh, 2016 campaign, had bought his house and doubled his money after Trump had uh, elbowed Epstein uh, out of the purchase of it, that uh, Cohen had said that, that Donald Trump mused that this is, this is probably Vladimir Putin purchasing his house. And then Cohen then backtracked it later and saying it was, a, he thinks it was, a, it was a joke, you know? And one, one last thing is that the, the thing that I think we need to understand all of this, and one of the reasons why we're going to play even some of the stuff from Oliver Stone and, and the direct interviews of Putin and then uh, Donald Trump and Putin and Helsinki and that Putin believes the strong, the, the wonderful, the beauty, I'm surprised he didn't say it was a beautiful denial that Putin gave, but he called it a powerful denial and all of that. Is that uh, just like Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, or just like George H.W. Bush, no one would have a problem thinking that, you know, if some uh, former uh, head of the uh, Central Intelligence Agency uh, wrapped up in all kinds of nefarious affairs, including uh, covert war, uh, drug running networks, assassinations, even uh, questions of domestically in the case of George H. W. Bush. No one would have a, a, in these kinds of spheres that we're talking about that criticize the deep state and the deep state can only be uh, located in the West or in the United States. They would have no problem saying if George H. W. Bush said something, uh, denying something that may, oh, maybe he's lying. Maybe he's lying. Maybe he's, uh, you know, do, doing what certain aspects of uh, intelligence operatives do for a living, lying. Now, so Vladimir Putin lies about these. Of course, well, he's going to say, oh, you caught us. You caught us with our hybrid warfare and our, our relationship with your man Manafort, both in Ukraine and Mike Connell and hack, hacking the elections, both in Ukraine and the United States. You caught us. No, he's lying. He's in, he, and, and Donald Trump is the perfect asset of all of that because no one, has a longer, bigger, more televised track record of just lying. And you can see it even in Michael Cohen's book about like low level stuff, like where, where they, they, Donald Trump had a uh, Michael Cohen basically um, fraud up an online poll about who were the most influential business leaders uh, in order to get him right into the top 20. I think it was. And then he just lied. They lied their ass off about that kind of thing, which was not necessarily criminal, but it was just sort of immoral. And it showed sort of some kind of a narcissism in the way Donald Trump was talking about. It. So you read behind the scenes and yeah, they're just lying to you when they're on camera and it doesn't stop with Vladimir Putin. I was just going to say that's an insight into like the psyche and the mindset of Donald Trump. And something else we want to do is dig into some of the, um, psychological um, evaluations of Trump by medical professionals that was, it seems like uh, Nancy Pelosi played a key role in um, ensuring did not make it to uh, congressional hearings. And of why like the combination of like Trump is this owned, entirely owned agent of uh, foreign 
entities combined with this per personality of his and like the ways and like this narcissism that you talked about and like this abject um complete um willingness to lie over little petty things like this just to stroke his ego is in a lot of ways i believe like we need to do more research but i believe it was like a perfect recipe for what we got in 2016 so exactly all right greg we do have one more clip but i don't know maybe we should just finish it finish it off here for now and then come back to it we have a bunch of more clips actually Inter including uh, Helsinki uh, and including uh, Oliver Stone talking about uh, his version of Putin's strong, clear denial. But also we have an interesting clip from uh, the recent um, uh, quote-unquote anti-APAC uh, conference. Um, and I actually interviewed Walter Hickson, who's a diplomatic historian who introduced the, the conference. It's, it's based out of the Middle East Report and uh, the Institute for Research Middle East Policy, um, the, uh, which whose information we've referenced over and over again in terms of they, they're the ones who helped expose the background of the uh, Israeli exfiltration of nuclear material and have taken on in a legal fashion the, the official policy of the United States to not uh, to do a... a, a neither confirm nor deny the question of Israeli nukes uh, and all of that. And at this conference that just happened, uh, Ryan Dawson flew in from Japan and he met um, the naturalist capitalist, uh, Reed Coverdale and, uh, and, uh, and Eric Jackman at the conference and some of the comments they, that they made about their response to the conference are very interesting in relationship to uh, this moment, and especially in terms of uh, Ukraine and Russia and, and all of that. But um, I, I'd be willing to play it now, but maybe we should uh, do it next time. What do you think, Greg? Um, I think that it might be good to, um, to recharge and come back and do that clip. Uh, by the way, uh, you mentioned uh, Dawson came up with the term Fuckowitz to describe. <laughs> um, we'll get more into that next time, but uh, I mean, yeah, we could, we could, we could do that on our our next show. Now, if you don't mind, Jeremy, I wanted to uh, go back just real quick to the McCarthy um, that uh, that tidbit of McCarthy saying Trump and Rohrabacher are owned by uh, Putin. I wanted to back that because that sounds perfectly believable because we've identified it seems to me that much like there was a lindsey graham before and after trump it seems like there may have also been a kevin mccarthy before and after trump and a marco rubio before and after trump so that type of off-the-cuff remark quote-unquote joke i could see entirely plausible that that happens and this is a perfect encapsulation of mccarthy and paul ryan in the case of paul ryan he leaves the house he leaves congress after trump is elect. I believe he was the speaker for a year or two. And then McCarthy completely takes advantage of it and becomes one of the foremost open enablers of everything that we're seeing play out today. And uh, this is very much an example of like where like the establishment Republicans and the non-establishment quote unquote come together because like obviously Ryan McCarthy, their interests are very much in line economically with what was happening under a Trump administration. But then you also have this combination of foreign intrigue and maybe blackmail, maybe threats. I don't know what's going on there. Remember Trump threatened to give out Lindsey Graham's up, give out Lindsey Graham's personal cell phone number, I believe, at a rally. And then Lindsey Graham is on the golf course a year and a half later uh, with Trump and they're all buddy buddy. And I mean, Trump basically replaced uh, John McCain as uh, Lindsey Graham's BFF in some ways, it seems like. Um, but this is where that, um, where it meets in terms of like the, we always talk about the combination of the open 
seditionists and the dogs that didn't bark, so to speak, and where the, the compromise lies. And it even, even goes back to the Bushes, a combination of these domestic political and social interests that align with like ultimately what is about to come from a Trump through the networks we talk about the council national politics, et cetera. But then also this geopolitical intrigue and potential compromise and definite um definite uh merging of interest over time financially and otherwise as this completely outward of American entity gains complete control over the Republican Party and enters into the most powerful office in the world. Yes, and it really is a great example of the macro compromise operation that was affected via the micro, uh, in Trump's case, super micro operation in terms of the 11-9 operation. But this one actually effectively, you know, was the capstone on sealing the GOP as a compromised entity uh, for Kremlin interests. And we pointed out before that, you know, obviously, like if you think about the Israel lobby, it's totally pervasive. It's totally bipartisan and all of that. But we pointed out that Glenn Blavatnik, this key, uh, you know, background is in the Russian Soviet sphere and the, Re the Renovo group and hooked up with people like a uh, background with people like uh, Victor uh, Vexelberg and the Alpha, the Alpha Bank guys. And all that, that he had, that Blavatnik had been very uh, bipartisan in terms of his political investments. And then for 2016, he shifted it all to the Republicans, basically, pointing to that there was an operation going on there. And that even those that, that were not directly, uh, obviously, made men of some sort, which I think it is the case. It's obviously that there was not a joke by Kevin McCarthy. Was he joking? Maybe. But it was not, it was not just like a joke. It was actually, it's, it's very obvious to people who have looked at it that, yeah, 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 yeah. Tr Trump and Rohrbacher. Yeah, I don't think he would have named two, I mean, it's, it would be, he would be hard pressed to more accidentally, quote unquote, name two more perfect examples than that. Exactly. And, and the only sort of joke about it was that it was limited to them at some level. And but what it shows is that then after the fact, they, they, Ryan knew that this was really dangerous politically. Uh, for that even to to be leaked out, reported out. And then McCarthy, you see, then he sort of just turns the whole thing in in the in the uh, in the words of uh, Rod Rosenstein and get help land the plane. Uh, and the question is, whose plane were they landing at some level? And uh, just the de facto uh, surface of of this operation goes back to what we pointed out pretty early on in the Trump years, that the way that the Trump operation was run in terms of the psychological component of it was to truly compromise. Uh, it was putting a capstone on the compromise of the sort of the, the Patriot right, the sort of sphere surrounding someone like Alex Jones, but then also a capstone on the, the, uh, sort of pseudo, the, the, uh, the chaos aspects of the truth movement and the truthers and all of that. And, and it turned out we were exactly correct. And the, the, those, those segments never recovered. Uh, they, you know, even to like this last weekend, someone like Kat McGuire, who came up through under, like learning about deep politics through nine 11, who was the, the co-host, the producer of the left out forum in 2017 
um, where I presented along with other lots of other people on on issues of deep politics, such as stuff like September 11th, such as uh, Israeli intelligence and technology and all kinds of stuff like that, where now she's uh, on regularly with Kevin Barrett at False Flag Weekly News. And they basically just sort of go through every sort of different versions of the sort of Russian perspective on it. And uh, and the stories that, that Kat introduces come down to out of a rebel media, rebel media, right? Ezra Levant, hardcore Zionists, who we've seen now sort of comes into the sort of Russian sphere over these last years. And then uh, Hoft, uh, we believe it's Jim Hoft's brother. So the, 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 the sphere that was at the table before Breitbart uh, and uh, and Bibi, so this is the disintegration of the of the credibility and the ability of discernment for for these kinds of uh, these kinds of networks of like Alex Jones is someone who Kevin Barrett, despite having been you know uh, dismissed by by Alex Jones when I called in during the transition to point out that Mike Flynn was not a patriot, he was has was. Uh, wrote his book with arch neocon Michael Ledeen, and I brought up some other potential people that he could bring on, including Kevin Barrett at that time. I would not uh, suggest bringing Kevin Barrett on at this point in terms of that. And Kevin Barrett to this day sort of defended Alex Jones and all of that. And so I just point out that th- there's a similar kind of capstone that the that the, the 11-9 operation affected in a similar fashion to the way that it totally compromised in a even a spiritual fashion at the very least in an intellectual and political fashion of both the sort of the truther sphere and the uh the patriot sphere uh but it also then accomplished the, a very similar thing with the with the totality of the of the Republican party and that is so well seen in terms of the moves of Kevin McCarthy directly after uh, in the years subsequent to when he blurted out this obvious truth about uh, obvious Russian assets such as uh, uh, Trump and Rohrbacher. Yep. And uh, most recently, Kevin was uh, basically praising Roger Stone in an article. And he's right, the only fault he can find with Roger Stone is that Roger Stone's too much of a coward to say that Israel was involved in the Kennedy assassination. So there, so there you go. We'll we'll continue to like uh, dissect uh, the uh, the alternative media that we've even you know been uh, in the in interface with and been you know uh, allied with at different times and and, and all of that. And th- it needs to be uh, dissected at this point because it's a it's not it's it's become totally illegitimate. I think in terms of the the way that it's uh, uh, pursuing uh, the so called truth at this point. All right, agreed. And I guess we will uh, wrap up and come back to this with um, focused with the focus on Oliver Stone and um, these Helsinki clips and getting into that realm of things. Because Oliver Stone is really shaping up as a key key uh, figure in terms of like the uh, the propaganda war that I would say is going on surrounding all things related to uh, the Russian and uh, Putin aspect of things. Yes. All right. Very good. All right. Well, thank you very much, Greg. Thank you. Thank you, everybody out there. We appreciate you. Until next time, Antidote, we are out. So long.